0: Nisambul you listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Bo Okoroi Hawkins.
1: Coming up... The first thing that uh, parties will want is that uh, their presidents will become prime ministers uh, in any coalition government.
0: As Vanuatu awaits the official election results, a former prime minister of the country says good coalition management will be key to future political stability.
2: Also... It's very poor now at providing documentation, proper documentation of the projects that it funds.
0: Concerns are being raised about a lack of transparency around Australia's foreign aid programs. And later on?
3: It's just a little bit easier to talk to them, approach them, for them to approach us, a familiar face in a different country.
0: We check in on the first ever Women's International Defence Rugby Competition, which is underway in Auckland. Based on unofficial results from the Vanuatu snap election, two of the five former prime ministers are set for seats in the new parliament. Along with returned incumbent Bob Lofman are Shalos Salwai on Pentecost and Sato Kilman on Malekula? So far, unofficial results show none of the political parties which contested the election managed to secure a simple majority of 27 of the 52 seats. Mr Kilman told our correspondent in Port Vila, Hilea Bule he had to think hard about putting his name forward again.
1: I had decided not to contest again, but then uh, the leaders on Malakula asked me to contest, so they came to me and I said, well, if you've got the assurance and the guarantee that the, you've got the photos uh, with you, then I will. And uh, they did, they convinced me and I agreed to contest. and uh, I think the election results uh, shows that uh, that confidence.
4: As a former uh, member of parliament and uh, one of the veteran politicians in what was the main challenge of this election, snap election
1: in Malakula? There was not really any political challenges. Uh, the only uh, uh, big uh, problem that uh, is, is the concerns of the people on Malakula about the the quality of the infrastructure and the ability for governments to be able to provide facilities for economic development.
4: There will be a new coalition government?
1: Definitely there will be, with uh, the number of prime ministers or big political parties. Obviously, the first thing that uh, parties will want is that uh, their Presidents will become Prime Ministers in any coalition government. I think the issue will be how many parties in that coalition government and how, if we were in my party, that uh, the grouping will be able to manage that coalition. I think that is the important thing. With regards to governing the country, There shouldn't be much difficulty because all political parties had agreed to the National Sustainable Development Plan. And basically, it is time for political parties to show when they're in government uh, how and what sort of vehicles they can provide to achieve those objectives.
4: And what about the constitutional reform for
3: your party?
1: For us, that is a very important uh, uh, topic on the agenda. And uh, if uh, PPP uh, were going to be in government, then one of the things we will be pushing, like uh, I'm sure other political parties as well, uh, to see some form of amendments to the constitution and other relevant laws to probably address the the stability issues, for example. Uh, And I think this is the, the main thing. If we can do that, then we're probably on the right track to developing Vanuatu further.
0: The Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University is raising concerns about the lack of transparency in the Australian Government's foreign aid programme. The centre has completed an audit of the aid spending each year since 2013, but found most aspects of aid transparency have deteriorated since 2019 and that the overall transparency is now very low. The audits focus on how much useful information the aid programme makes available on the aid website but one of the compilers of the report, Terence Wood, told Don Wiseman that a change of approach is needed to improve transparency.
2: Australia is a major donor, particularly in the Pacific, and yet, while it's quite transparent in some ways, um, it lists most of the aid projects that it funds on its website. It's not nearly transparent enough in other ways. In particular, it's very poor now at providing documentation, proper documentation of the projects that it funds on its website. So the sort of documentation that would give you a sense of what a project's meant to do, how well designed a project has been, and how a project is performing. It's now much harder to find that information on the Australian Aid Programme's website than was the case in 2013.
5: Why do you think that is? If you're a cynical
2: sort of person, you might say that actually it's in the government's interest to hide information on aid projects from uh, people with prying eyes journalists academics civil society and the like and so maybe it's in the government's interest not to make information available however i think in this instance the real issue is simply that the structural changes that happened to the australian aid program with the demise of uh, ausaid left it in a position where it had too few staff and uh, too few staff who were aware of what they needed to do to make sure that key information on their projects were publicly available online. So in this instance, I actually think that the Australian government's not proactively trying to hide anything so much as that it just hasn't got the right structures in place to get the right information out there to the public.
5: Australia, of course, has always had a reputation for boomerang aid, the involvement of a lot of Australian companies in delivering the aid. I know that's not something that's exclusive to Australia, but do you think there's any link up here in terms of the reticence over transparency?
2: Probably not. I mean, Australia has officially untied its aid since the late 2000s. So its boomerang aid problem isn't as major on paper as it used to be once upon a time, in theory, although Australian companies do often win contracts for Australian aid projects, they win them through free and open tender processes. And you can raise all sorts of questions about whether Australian companies have an advantage in those processes by virtue of being in Australia and so on. But there's nothing particularly corrupt going on in the allocation of aid projects in Australia right now of the nature that the Australian government would really feel the need to hide it. I think that's my that's my sense anyhow.
5: We know the Australian Labour Party before the election had a desire, at that point anyway, to improve the transparency. What is it that they need to do and do you think they'll do it?
2: That's a really interesting question because the problem is that it's not something that can be solved as simply as the government of the day saying to the aid programme, Be transparent. What any government would have to do would be to actually set in place systems and provide resources to the aid program that would enable it to increase its transparency, get the right structures in place so that it was more transparent and that it had the staff resources that it would enable the aid program to be more transparent. So it'll be a test of Labor's patience and, I guess, determination in this area. Are they willing to push the aid program and provide it with the necessary resources? to actually see a transparency transformation. And uh, at this point in time, uh, that's an open question.
5: Now, just as a an aside, all of the Western nations are going through tight economic times. Do you think this is the sort of thing that is going to lead to vastly reduced foreign aid budgets in the next few budgets?
2: That's a political decision because in Australia and New Zealand and most Western countries, aid makes up less than 1% of government spending. So if you're running a deficit and you really need to save money, you're going to find that cutting your aid program isn't going to save you that much money. And by the same token, you could sustain your aid program and it really wouldn't leave you in in a much worse economic state. So really... um, When you see large aid cuts or large aid aid increases, that usually tends to reflect the political priorities of the government of the day.
0: The COVID 19 pandemic posed many challenges for Pacific Island countries, but also allowed communities to return to a more traditional way of life. Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat leading researcher Dr. Fiona Hukula says the pandemic saw our sea of islands tapping into their ability to live off our land and sea. Hokula says during the height of the pandemic, Pacific peoples were able to reflect on their dependence on imported goods, especially food and how they can live a more healthy and sustainable life. Our reporter Rachel Nath caught up with Dr. Hokula and began by asking her about the noticeable trends over the last two years.
6: One of the key things in terms of due to COVID nineteen and lockdowns was the opportunity for our Pacific people to build on some of our strengths, which very much still lie in our kinship and relational ties. And so, in times where we um, we definitely saw in the during the COVID uh, pandemic that we have a high dependence on imported goods, and so. In countries um, like Fiji and Solomon Islands, we, we know from research that was undertaken that there was a reinvigoration of local food systems and local food production and the re-emergence of cultural cultural safety networks such as the barter system. Um, now, why is it
4: important that Pacific communities move away or, or reduce their reliance on um, imported goods?
6: I think for me, I would say that the key, one of the key or the key um, thing or importance of moving away from imported goods is really because we've also got, uh, it's related to health. In, in some of our countries, we've got, we have high levels of um, obesity, of um, uh, lifestyle diseases like diabetes. And so during that time where there was um the opportunity to start to go back to some of our old old, or our cultural traditional ways of living in terms of a healthy and more sustainable life. I think that was one of the important things that came out of um, some of these COVID lockdowns for us to be able to go back to um, some of our traditional cultural food um, sustainability practices and other things like that. Right. And, and
4: do you think it's sustainable for the Pacific to shift its dependence from imported goods and move to a more traditional way of lifestyle?
6: Well, I think it's really about a balance and ensuring that we are consuming food that is better for us in terms mm. of our health.
4: Mm. And what would a balance look like? Does it require a
6: government level initiative? A, a bit of both. It, it also requires... Um, individuals and families um, being able to um, have that um, opportunity also to um, produce food, um, maybe um, better access to markets, especially for uh, rural communities to come to urban markets. Um, And so, and the uh, continuous advocacy around eating better and healthier, uh, food.
4: Yes, of course. And, and Obviously, Pacific is moving to a more modern sort of lifestyle, and yes. we understand our communities are becoming more urban. So, um, I just give an example and say Fiji, for that matter, Suva, which is now becoming a more populated urban sort of setup. There are lesser land spaces. Um, how do we sustain a system like this where we're moving, where we find a balance and do not rely so highly on imported
6: goods? I think that's a really good question. And, and your point um, around urbanization is also related to uh, migration from rural areas, you know, be, due to other issues like climate change, um, where people are now or having to move to other places. And so, again, I, I feel that it's, it's also about ensuring the access and accessibility of market uh, goods or local produce from the rural to the urban so it's um that ability for us to where we can feed our own populations
4: Mm, absolutely that sounds like a really good uh balance in between. Um, And I think you highlighted something important that we must address for the Pacific is climate change. That probably has an impact on the sustainability in the long term because our countries are so prone to tropical cyclones, floodings. How do we maintain a lifestyle where we can find a balance and we can work with our adverse weather conditions?
6: Well, look, I think we've already been doing that in many ways and we know that our Pacific people are very, very resilient and um, there's been the agenda of climate change and the issue is really one that is um, that is felt all across our region. And, and so while it's um, something that's been uh, talked about, about a lot at very high levels in policy forums in other different spaces. Uh, Our people are addressing or um, adapting to live in this kind of um, climate resilient environment uh, daily. And for me, it would be um, for for those who are um, advocating for, again, you know, for climate action. It's really understanding what what is um, the needs of local people and also how how they themselves at present are working or addressing the issues that they face in their communities and villages every day around climate change. Because only when we do that and we understand what the issues are from the very local setting, we're able to provide uh, interventions. That's right,
4: of course. And and that's why we must commend the work that, um, you know, people like you do that work in our communities that are able to navigate these um, issues that exist. And uh, rightfully said, resilience and skillfulness is what the Pacific needs to use. So sort of tapping back into our more traditional style of life. Um, in saying that, Doc, I wonder if you are aware of any successful models in the Pacific, anywhere that has removed themselves from a high dependency on imported goods and sort of have gone back to a traditional style of life?
6: I'm not aware, but I, I'm, you know, having said we, our, our discussion on dependence on import imported goods, I think there's there are still many communities, um, you know, in the vast Blue Pacific continent who, who do live off the land. I know in my own country, Papua New Guinea, there's many people who who live off their land off the sea um, who are quite um, uh, in in remote areas away from the urban settings uh, and so it's really uh, again like I've said um, finding that balance between the between the two because we are living in this very modern society, and so our lifestyle. And eating habits are changing, but I think we still have the opportunity to be able to live off our land and sea.
0: The first ever women's international defence rugby competition is underway in Auckland, bringing together military partners from around the world in efforts to combine the participants' sporting passions with their professional lives. Teams in the tournament include New Zealand, Australia, Fiji, France, Papua New Guinea, Tonga, the United Kingdom and Vanuatu. Susana Susuiki has more.
3: Engineering Officer for the New Zealand Defence Force, Jokaveti Wangani-Walu, says although she's representing New Zealand on the field, she's proud to be Fijian and that the tournament is an opportunity for her to connect with her country of heritage. Having Coming from that background and knowing you know, how we've come through to where we are now, it just... It's just a little bit easier to talk to them, approach them, for them to approach us, a familiar face in a different country, um, just to be as welcoming as we can as well. New Zealand Navy Commander Miss Julie Fitzel says the calibre of the teams is exceptionally high and that the competition contributes to the personal development of each of the participants. The
6: platform that is, you know, that is starting to develop now for these women um, is brilliant. Um, and it's in terms of the development and the, and the opportunities that are starting to uh, present themselves, it's brilliant for women's rugby. Um, it's brilliant for, for women's sport in general, overall.
3: No matter what and where they play, the support for Tonga is unmatched. This is the case for the Tongan Women's Rugby Defence Force team, who have had mixed results in the tournament so far, but Captain Hala Halaapiapi says forming friendships is the most important takeaway from the competition.
6: We came for rugby, but the bonding is um, what matters the most. When we come here, the bonding between us and top countries. So, yeah, we're really happy to come and participate. And if there's um, another tournament next time, we will love to come over if they
3: invited us. The semi-finals of the tournament will be held on Wednesday, 19th October, with the finals held on Tuesday, 25th of October. For match schedules and results, head over to nzdf.mil.nz/idrc.
1: That's
0: specific waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. If you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and look at me next time